So hello everybody. It's great to have you guys here. Thank you all for coming. So today's uh, discussion is going to be about uh, volatility, all things volatility. So uh, if we look at the markets, volatility is almost the defining characteristic of all kinds of markets and assets and stocks and bonds and, and so on. And um, so basically when we buy a stock, it can go up or down and uh, that is volatility. And we want to understand the impact of volatility on not just our individual investments, but also our portfolio as a whole. And uh, so there is, uh, there are a lot of concepts here uh, to unpack. And uh, there, there are some fundamental concepts to understand about volatility. And uh, volatility is actually one of the um, sort of poorly understood areas of investing. And so uh, this, this podcast is basically to uh, help us all uh, gain a better grasp of these concepts. Uh, so first of all, before um, talking about volatility, uh, it's, it's a good idea to first define what we mean by volatility. So different people have different ideas of what exactly volatility means. Uh, one common measure of volatility, for example, is uh, beta. Uh, so if you, if you take a stock, uh, if you go to Yahoo Finance or uh, Google Finance or something like that, it will give you the beta of the stock. And a lot of people think that beta is uh, uh, some kind of proxy for uh, volatility. But that is not exactly true because beta measures two things actually. Beta measures, uh, uh, it measures volatility, but it also measures correlation. Um, and uh, it, it's a combined measure. So if you, if you have a stock, for example, and uh, let's, let's say uh, this stock is completely correlated to the market. Whatever the market does, this stock does, except that uh, it does 2x what the market does. So if the market goes up 1%, the stock will go up 2%. If the market goes down 1%, the stock goes down 2%. So whatever the market does, this stock will do uh, 2x that. Now, this is a stock that has 100% correlation uh, with the broader market, and uh, its beta will be 2 and, but um, if, if the stock were completely uncorrelated with the rest of the market, um, but it still jumps around quite a bit. So if the, if the stock, uh, say, to take an extreme example, let's say the stock either doubles or halves uh, every single day, but uh, the stock is completely uncorrelated with the rest of the market, then uh, the beta of the stock will be zero. But look at how much it moves around. It doubles or halves every single day. Uh, so beta is not exactly a perfect measure of volatility because it combines correlation with volatility. Uh, so when I say volatility, I mean uh, stocks that move around a lot are volatile, whether they are uh, correlated with the rest of the market or not. And there's a lot of cool math th that goes into understanding uh, volatility. So uh, we hope to touch upon some of these concepts today. Uh, so there is this uh, concept of geometric means, arithmetic means versus geometric means. Then there is the concept of ergodicity. Then there are uh, uh, there's Black-Scholes and other options pricing models and so on. There are all kinds of interesting thought experiments like Shannon's demon and things like that. 
Uh, and of course, there's the volatility tax, which is what my uh, thread was about. Uh, so there are all these different concepts that we hope to touch upon today. But before that, I just wanted to mention that uh, when we say volatility, it's not exactly the same as beta. Um, so uh, there are lots of great people on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, if you want to learn more about volatility, there is uh, Jason Buck and uh, Taylor Pearson. They run this uh, company called Mutiny Fund, I believe. Uh, then there's... Uh, Matt Hollerback, uh, he's actually on the call today. Uh, nice to see you, Matt. Uh, anytime you want to talk, uh, come on over. Um, then there's uh, Ben Eifert, uh, who who, uh, who also posts a lot of stuff on volatility. And uh, there, there's uh, Chris Abdelmessi. And uh, uh, so Chris is our guest of honor today. Um, so uh, Chris and I had a wonderful chat uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, on all things volatility, and I'm really, really happy that he's agreed to come on the call. So I'm I'm a computer scientist. I don't really uh, have um, a formal uh, background in finance or investing. Uh, I, I I've never had a job on Wall Street, or uh, I've ne I've never uh, traded options professionally or any anything like that. Uh, but Chris uh, has all all these experiences, which which I don't have. And uh, his just his wealth of experience from being involved in uh, in so many kinds of uh, um, trading and um, uh, with so much exposure to volatility, he he has been uh, able to think about this these topics for a much longer than what I have been able to think about. So I'm really looking forward to um, uh, sort of uh, ask him questions and uh, um, uh, discuss these things with him. So. Uh, Let's get started. And uh, Chris, um, if, if you could uh, just say a few words introducing yourself um, and uh, then, then we can start taking questions. Oh, hey, hey there. Yeah. Hi, 10K. Absolutely. Uh, so first of all, thanks for asking me to do this. Uh, I've, I'm, I've been a huge fan of all of your uh, threads, not just the content of them, but how you present them. Uh, I think it's well, your follow your followership is a validation of how good they are. So that, that uh, thanks for having me on. I'm a huge fan, and um, I've used, um, you know, a lot of you may not know me, but I, I've actually used a lot of 10K's threads um, as a launching point to discuss some of the topics that he's um, referenced already. Uh, a little bit about me: um, I traded. Uh, I've been trading options for 21 years. I uh, started trading I, when I started in this uh, business. It was right out of uh, right out of right out of college. I went to a firm called Susquehanna, which is uh, one of the large derivatives market making firms out there. And I started on the American Stock Exchange, and I traded ETFs. Uh, I traded equity options, uh, index options there. I spent a couple years on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, as a specialist in ETFs, and um, most of you probably know what an ETF is. It's like a mutual fund, but it's listed on an exchange. And then, uh, and then, after about five years, I moved over to the commodity markets, and uh, where I spent the uh, the remainder of my career, um, and that was trading options on commodity commodity futures, um, some fixed income, some FX, but. Um, I've spent the last 15 years or so uh, trading options on um, non, basically non-equities. So um, 
and the volatility properties of all of these things are different. So it's kind of, uh, I've gotten to get a nice survey of um, lots of aspects of financial markets. Um, my, per, like, uh, one thing I think a lot of people wonder is like, oh, if you're an options trader, what kind of a background do you have to have? Uh, so 10K's background is far more sophisticated than mine. He is an actual uh, math person. Um, I have an undergrad economics degree that was not very rigorous as far as um, mathematics. I, I told them, I joked around that I basically BS my way through a degree and, uh, you know, writing, writing essays. Uh, but all the math that I needed to learn uh, I was able to learn on the job and I would most, I write a lot about math and show a lot about math, but the, but all of it is high school to college level. There's nothing all that sophisticated in there. Uh, but I think that uh, my hope here today is to maybe bring some, you know, 10 K strength is very technical and maybe I'm able to help bridge that to the practical, the practical aspects of trading and be able to help out if anybody has questions about uh, how options work specifically. Um, I think that's where I can be very complimentary. Uh, yeah, that that's a great point. So uh, I'm, I'm the theory guy and uh, Chris is the practice guy. So in as the saying goes, in, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so, so we'll be happy to take uh, questions. Uh, so does anyone want to uh, kick, kick this off with a question for uh, either uh, me or Chris? Okay, so uh, the first question comes from uh, Dividend Invest. Hey, 10K. Hey, Chris. Uh, thanks for your time. Appreciate you talking about this. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about is uh, the key topic about rolling returns. Uh, how does that play into the volatility? Like uh, we see these uh, rolling returns in the sense like, uh, you know, uh, weekly, monthly, daily, and so on. So for an equity investor, how would that rolling return help to understand the risk? Uh, so, so when you say rolling return, uh, do you mean you have uh, uh, you just buy and hold a stock and it does uh, different things, and um, e each month it either goes up or down, and then uh, what you get is the compounded effect of all these um, movements? Is is that what you mean by rolling yeah, returns? Exactly, exactly. In the trade where we talk about the volatility tax, right? Uh, would adding the metric or looking at the rolling returns help to come up with the you know the the risk factor so in other words if i buy and hold an index um, i keep seeing that like oh if you have held it for seven years you would not have lost the money irrespective to when you got in right so i'm trying to understand how that relates to volatility uh, right absolutely so uh, rolling returns um, are, uh, it, it, this is a very, very fundamental concept and it's uh, central to the volatility tax. Um, so the, the basic idea 
um, is the difference between uh, arithmetic expectations and uh, geometric expectations. So if you have a stock, um, let, let's say the uh, you have a stock that can double or half in uh, any given year. So uh, for example, if you put $100 into the stock and you wait one year, let's say at the end of the year, the stock could be at $200 or it could be at $50 because it could either double or half. Uh, now let's say both these outcomes have the same probability, 50-50. So on average, you expect uh, to have either $200 or $50. So on average, it's $125. And uh, so since you started with $100 and now you have uh, an expectation of $125, the expected return in any given year is 25% on this stock. But if you hold the stock for a very long time, if you just buy the stock and then hold it for a very long time, you are not going to compound your money at 25%. You are actually going to compound your money at 0%. Uh, now, why is that? Well, if you think about it, every doubling is going to cancel out uh, halving. So if, if a stock doubles and then halves, it just leaves you with where you were before. So 100, 100 becomes uh, 200 when, when the stock doubles and then the 200 becomes uh, 100 again when the stock halves. So a doubling followed by a halving does absolutely nothing for you. And because these two <laughs> outcomes have 50-50 chance, if you just hold the stock for a very, very long time, the number of doublings and the number of halvings are going to be approximately equal to each other. And so they will just cancel out each other and you will get a 0% return. So the arithmetic average tells you that you expect a 25% return in any given year. But if you simply hold it, your rolling return is not going to be 25%. It's going to be closer to 0%. And that is really the core concept behind the volatility tax. Uh, and uh, this, this uh, it's not really a tax imposed by the government. It's, uh, it's just this difference between what happens when you uh, take a single year versus what happens when you take the compounded effect of multiple years in succession, one after the other. Uh, so, uh, so volatility plays a big role in determining what your rolling returns uh, will be. Can, I'll, let me. I'll, I'll chime in here with something. Um, I think it's. I think it's a uh, helpful. Um, it's helpful to immediately divide to to think about what kind of a world you're in. Uh, if you are, if you are invest as an investor, you're typically concerned with exactly what 10K is talking about, which is compound like the compounding of your wealth, meaning that you make a return and you let it ride. And in the example that he gave, if you if you made that return and you let it ride, uh, yeah, you would just end up with zero in the long run because you'd keep canceling out your gains. The alternative to that, where you don't end up sort of under this tyrannical geometric math, is the case where you take money off the table. So if you started with $100 and then you, you entered into this proposition where you expect to make 25%, you place your bet, you see the outcome, and then the next period you bet, if you if you bet the, uh, that's your expected arithmetic return. If you do not keep, if you keep betting a fraction of your bankroll, 
you will not be exposed to the same dynamic. You are you are leaving this geometric return world and going into an arithmetic return world. But if if you the the issue with that is as you're doing that, if you think about it, you're placing this bet that has positive expectancy. And so you, you, you get paid off on that. But so in the long run, your bankroll is going to be growing, but because you're only betting a fraction of your bankroll, you're only able, you're not able to compound the entire, you're not able to compound the entire corpus of your wealth at this proposition that looks so attractive because the, the reason of course, is because the, the, the proposition, despite being very attractive, is very risky, meaning it has a lot of volatility. So you need to constrain your bet size if you want to realize that return over the long run. So that's, and that's kind of how we get into that topic of rebalancing, because all rebalancing is, is saying, I have this proposition, I'm going to take my profits off the table, or if that proposition gets cheaper, I'm going to add to it. But the geometric math starts to really show itself as you let your bets ride. If you basically you're not rebalancing. Thank you so much. I think uh, that that helps to understand the uh, differences. Yeah, go ahead, then, K. Sorry. Right. Uh, so, so what Chris says uh, is absolutely valid. So there are um, basically two advantage, uh, two ways to take advantage of volatility. Uh, one is to hold enough cash so that uh, when when uh, volatility hits and something becomes cheaper, you can buy it. Uh, and the second thing is uh, rebalancing uh, when that happens. So uh, when when something goes uh, becomes cheaper, um, then you buy more of it. And when something becomes expensive as a result of volatility, you sell it. And um, so just to take this very example, this uh, doubling or halving example that I gave, uh, it's um, uh, it's a problem called Shannon's uh, demon. And um, uh, this was proposed by the great scientist Claude Shannon. And so we said that uh, there is a arithmetic return, which is plus 25 percent. Uh, if you uh, if you ex uh, the, the expected return in any given year is 25 percent. But then if you hold this uh, stock for a very long time, you're going to get zero percent. And Shannon actually figured out uh, that there is a rebalancing strategy uh, to uh, to not get 25 percent, but to get six percent. So uh, if you hold this stock for a very long time, you will get zero percent, which is which is not what you want. Um, but what Shannon uh, discovered was a strategy that gets you six uh, percent per year um, through uh, through rebalancing. And uh, that, that's exactly what uh, Chris, Chris is mentioning here. So you cannot get your arithmetic return. The arithmetic return, 25%, that, that is not realizable uh, on, a, on a compounded basis. Uh, but you don't have to settle for the geometric return, which is 0%. You can do better than the geometric return if you are willing to uh, sort of hold cash and rebalance your portfolio from time to time. So you, you can get 6%. And that, that's what uh, Shannon discovered. So we'll, we'll uh, uh, I, I'll take the next caller. Uh, Thank you. It's uh, Vinod. Oh, Vinod, you're on, you're on mute. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear yes. you. Yes. Hi. Hi, Chris. Hi, Trinke. 
Thanks for setting up the session. Um, I have a question regarding this uh, volatility uh, uh, tax. Right? Uh, you've taken sure. an example where you uh, uh, invested like a hundred dollar, and then you uh, run through a different scenarios. But what happens if we try to uh, keep investing the equal amount for the twenty year twenty years period of time? Will that the volatility uh, we can take that as an advantage uh, if this, uh, the, because the end result is going to be same in terms of um, even though the the arithmetic behind reaching the uh, twenty CAGR twenty year CAGR uh, might be slightly lower, but due to this volatility, you might have an opportunity to uh, my buy. Uh, more at uh, uh, a reasonable or maybe a, a, at a discount, right? So how do you see this particular uh, aspect? Um, and also I have a follow-up, probably I will wait for uh, your thoughts, to hear your thoughts before I'm posting my other question. Uh, sure. So so the question is, uh, if, if I understand it correctly, uh, you're asking about what happens if you keep adding new capital, right? Exactly. The equal amount, yes. Uh, in equal of one, so something like a dollar cost averaging. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so that that's a very interesting problem. So, this is not exactly the setting that we discussed. So, in in our setting, uh, you 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 have a certain amount of capital, and uh, you you try to compound that amount of capital uh, geometrically, and uh, so you don't uh, you don't add any new capital. But if you're going to be adding new capital, uh, there is a very important effect called uh, sequence risk that that comes into play so uh, if you just think about it um, so let's let's say you have a hundred hundred year uh, period right um, and you're you're trying to invest money over this hundred uh, year period each year you're going to add some new capital uh, in, into this uh, stock or whatever and let's say uh, it, it doubles or halves uh, in in any given year um, now um, if if you don't add any new capital, then uh, a doubling and halving sort of cancel each other out, and you you're you're left with uh, nothing. So uh, if if you if you have fifty doublings and fifty halvings, uh, they they will just cancel each other out over these hundred years, and you'll be left with exactly what you started. But if you're going to be adding new capital, then uh, you should basically hope for uh, backloaded returns. So if all the, uh, the the order of the doublings and halvings now matters. Previously, the order of the doublings and halvings did not matter. But now yeah. with the addition of new capital, uh, what happens is uh, you, you want all the doublings to come later and you want all the halvings uh, to come initially. <laughs> so so you're, you're, you're better off if, if you have 50 doublings and 50 halvings. Uh, you're better off if you all the 50 halvings come first and all the 50 doublings come later. Uh, then you you will have much more money than uh, if if all the uh, if, if all the doublings came first and all the halvings came uh, <coughs> later. You would you would have less money. So so the sequence is very very important and uh, th this plays a big role when you're adding capital and and the reverse applies when you're removing capital. So when people are earning, what happens is they typically add to their savings every year. And uh, so uh, if they're going to get good years and bad years, they should hope for bad years to come first. Um, hmm. But when you're in retirement, what you're doing is you're doing the reverse. You're removing capital. 
and uh, if if you're hoping for uh, if you're going to be getting good years and bad years you should hope for the bad years to come later if you're withdrawing capital uh, so so uh, volatility still still plays a role uh, but uh, sequence risk also plays an enormous role here so so chris do you want to add to that yeah i actually yeah this is um uh i actually have a post specifically about this topic um and what we're what you um what this is really about is what we would call path and what um and this is sort of a lot of time th- this rebalancing idea um you know one of the things about rebalancing is that it can sometimes uh if you at first glance maybe it looks like it's a free lunch but actually the lived experience of whether or not it helps actually depends on the path in which um your wealth has taken so you can think of um this is where autocorrelation comes in if you get uh, a sequence of multiple up moves or multiple down moves had you let your money compound in both cases meaning that you bet the the full amount every time versus the additive case where you took money off the table and bet a fixed dollar amount regardless of wealth you will actually do better if if it trends uh if 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 you let it constantly ride so like if you let it compound and it trends you will do better than the fixed dollar amount and that's true both on the upside and the downside um and so th- this idea is what we uh what we would call is the difference between trending and chopping the more the more an asset chops around in value or your wealth chops around the more rebalancing has to add to your portfolio the more that something trends the less you would want to rebalance of course we don't really know in advance if things are going to trend or chop so it's it's not prescriptive but it will turn out that whether you rebalanced or whether you let it ride the your experience will depend on whether the asset trended or chopped and you can think of the you can think of this as if 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 we go back to the additive example you start with $100 and you say I'm going to bet I'm going to bet a dollar say on a 50/50 proposition uh if you win and you bet another dollar what's happening is you you started with 100 now you have 101 because you won if you bet a dollar you are now betting less than one slightly less than 1% of your bankroll so you would have done better if you had if you had won and let it all ride and if if heads came up twice in a row so you won twice in a row you would have done better had you let it all ride versus taking money off the table um so what really matters is this is exactly what Tenke is saying it's the sequence of your return so path is very uh path is the determinant as to whether you would have been better off rebalancing or not okay great i think uh, it's a great insight Uh, the follow up to that is basically how do we take this principle and apply it in while analyzing the business um uh, for example some businesses could be uh, very stable and keep producing their revenue at a, maybe a 15 percentage cagr and some might be having goes ups and downs and some might be uh, cyclical can we apply i just wondering can we apply these kind of um, concepts into while analyzing the business rather than 
they're looking for a very volatile business which goes ups and down and uh, maybe use it as a principle to identify stable businesses keep investing our money uh, right uh, absolutely that, that that is a wonderful question um, so this this really touches upon uh, two different kinds of volatility so uh, there is the volatility in the markets which is the market price of the stock of the business uh, that that could be moving up and down a lot and uh, so that that stock uh, could be volatile the second thing is the volatility in the business fundamentals itself so the business has a certain amount of uh, assets and it's uh, earning a certain uh, percentage on those assets it's earning a return and um, uh, it's producing um, uh, cash flows and things like that and those things themselves could be volatile so for example there may be good years where the business earns a lot on its uh, asset base and there may be uh, bad years where the business earns only a little bit on its asset base and and so on so if you believe that over the long term uh, market prices are going to be uh, fundamentally tied to uh, fundamentals of the company like uh, earnings assets cash flows etc if you believe that over the long term uh, this this that there's going to be a correlation between uh, how much the market moves and uh, how much say the earnings of the company move then uh, your return uh, is going to be your, your long run return is going to be uh, far more a function of the volatility in the fundamentals uh, than in the volatility of the stock the, the, this is a fundamental point that a uh, lot of people miss that a uh, lot of people think that you know if if you have a high quality business a business that's earning good returns on capital then um, volatility doesn't really matter for this business um, but that is not exactly true um, because there's absolutely no business in the world that consistently makes 15% on capital every single year um there, there's there's no business uh, or at least I, I, as far as i know there, there's no business like that and if if anyone on the call know, knows one such business uh, please let me know uh, so i can invest into it uh, but but basically um whenever you have volatility in the business that uh, and that volatility compounds over a long period of time you you are going to be suffering from the volatility tax um even if you think the volatility of the market prices don't matter to you the volatility of the uh, fundamentals do matter okay. yeah. chris do you have anything to add to that yeah i was going to i was what i would add to that is uh the volatility you have the you have the fundal we'll, we'll call it the fundamental volatility which is the fundamental which is the volatility of the company's business its earnings its its its, its fundamental metrics and then you have the 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 volatility of the price so what you have so and we can think of the price as being uh you can decompose that into um some some part of that price volatility is because of the fundamental volatility and then the other portion of the price volatility is a function of how much the multiple moves around which is going to also be rooted in how much uh risk premia the market assigns or how much return the market as a whole requires for some given uh given level of um 
return. So you have a market risk premium in a di that's embedded in the price premium or price multiple of a, of a business, not just um, a multiple associated with the actual earnings of the business itself. So there's, there's really more than one source of volatility that is driving price volatility. So you, um, and in thinking about what you were saying here, you have this interesting uh, possibility where let's say you did find that magical stock that always returns 15%. Uh, that's, that is an example um, of how the volatility could work to your advantage because if the price volatility net of the volatility of the marketplace in general, the risk premium piece of it, that, that magical part that's just kind of bouncing around. If that part is very volatile, but the business, the underlying earnings are not very volatile of the business that can create trading opportunities. So if basically you're overshooting and undershooting, so this is, this is that idea that, you know, Buffett sort of has is volatility is your friend you know, gives you the opportunity to buy something whose fundamental uh, prospects have not deteriorated as much as the price may indicate. Likewise, the price can overshoot to the upside as risk premiums in general uh, shrink that that causes prices to be higher as risk premiums shrink. So maybe the risk premium has shrank too much. And even though you like the business, it may make sense at some price, it, you would be willing to sell that business. Um, so the price volatility can be an opportunity to trade around the fundamental volatility. Uh, but, you, you know, an investor might have to think about how they would want to decompose where that volatility in the price is coming from. How much of it, how much of it are people, fundamental investors in that stock's um, attribution of risk to that stock and how much of it is just Mr. Market? Okay. Right, absolutely. This is such a great insight. Uh, you you take the volatility of the stock, uh, of the market price of the stock, and then uh, you think of it as being made up of two components. One is uh, the the volatility of the fundamentals, and the second one is uh, the volatility of the multiple, essentially. And uh, so um, th this is the uh, if you had this magic stock. Where that that rose fifteen percent every where the fund where, where let's say the earnings rose fifteen percent every year, uh, then over a very long time uh, you can prove that uh, no matter what happens to the multiple you can you can buy the stock at a hundred multiple and then sell it at a twenty multiple uh, as long as you wait long enough uh, your your uh, your return as an investor will be equal to that. Uh, will we'll approach that 15% uh, over time. So um, over a very long period of time, uh, if there is no fundamental volatility, uh, then uh, the volatility in the uh, in the market price that uh, becomes less and less important as you wait longer and longer. But as Chris says, uh, if you don't want to wait, you can also take advantage of uh, the volatility by uh, by trading in and out, and uh, if if you know what you're doing, uh, that that might uh, actually help you improve your returns uh, even further. But even if you just buy and hold, uh, if you add this magic business with no fundamental volatility, then uh, you will essentially get uh, whatever the business earns on on its capital over time. 
thank you that a great insight sir sure. for the reason thank you thank you sure uh, we'll t- we'll take the next caller uh, the next caller is uh, is matthew hi hi 10k hi chris i hope you you and everyone else in the call is having a great sunday so i apologize in advance i'm out and about so there could be background noise but i've tried to go to an area where that kind of reduces that uh, distraction so that's sure. 10k your comment about options and options trading that's a nice segue into my particular question given this popularity via such platforms as twitter and the available information uh, via you and sinclair and others books what do retail and casual investors still misunderstand about volatility both in relation to their options and options trading and the traditional investments and what aspect of that institutional experience is really twofold question what aspect of that institutional experience and that education is still missing for the average retail person uh, right uh, the, the, these are great questions and um, so i think there are lots and lots of fundamental misconceptions that uh, people have about volatility especially individual uh, retail investors so um a, a simple thing like uh, volatility tax for example the, this idea that you have two stocks uh, they both have the same expected price but they could have wildly different uh, expected uh, growth rates um the, just just that is, is so counterintuitive to so many people um that um uh, retail investors um they they uh, they have a lot of misconceptions about uh, about options math and and things like that but um fundamental concepts like this uh, and ergodicity uh, are not really well understood or well appreciated by by most uh, retail investors uh, there is also this conception um that uh, derivatives and options are generally uh, sort of uh, weapons of mass destruction as as buffett likes to call them and because buffett used this particular phrase um, weapons of mass destruction to to refer to derivatives uh, there is a certain section of people who will never touch an option they will they will never go anywhere near an option or try to um, understand it or anything like that and so uh, they have these blinders unfortunately that um, uh, that shuts them out to a lot of other opportunities so i i, I know plenty of uh, investors and when when i try to um, tell them about options they they sort of have an instinctive um uh, uh, they 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 don't like to they, they have a, an instinctive mental block that uh, they they don't want to deal with options no no matter what and, and then of course there are lots of people who don't um uh, who who think that they understand volatility but who take enormous amounts of risk um they they actually turn short term volatility into long term risk um so when when you when you trade um say say uh, you know uh, tesla call options or some something like that uh, i i know a lot of people who who uh, who don't do any kind of rebalancing who uh, who sort of uh, bet um, a very large a uh, portion of that portfolio on these uh, weekly call options and and so on and uh, what what happens is they can turn short term volatility into long term risk very very easily and they don't quite realize it until it uh, actually comes and bites them uh, the the importance of uh, 
rebalancing and uh, the importance of betting only a fraction of your bankroll, things like that uh, are generally not very well understood. So, so on the one hand, you have investors who will never touch options. On the other hand, you have investors uh, who will take too much risk on options. There are both both kinds of bo- both are in a way uh, misconceptions. So I, I'll leave Chris to talk more about the institutional side of things since I'm I'm not very familiar with that. Uh, so so if if you have anything to add on that, Chris, that that'll be so great to have your perspectives. Yeah, this is so uh, Matthew. First of all, good to see you in here, buddy. Um, the so this is a fun question. I have I I I'm going to go a layer deeper on answering this question here. So the first question was the first part of the question was what do uh you know the 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 option learners or uh, obsessives and all that uh what what are they missing what are they what are they misunderstanding and the second part of the question is um sounded like what um what's missing from their education that can help them and i ha- i have uh um let me let me answer these questions the first one the first part of it is i think the first thing that is very poorly understood um, by people that are trying to learn about options is in understanding that the implied pare- the, uh, and I, I don't know, I don't know if this is too common. I'm just going to mention implied volatility here, but the idea of, uh, that implied volatility is the market's expectation of the volatility going forward. Now, this is a, it's very naive to think that high implied volatilities are things that you should sell and low implied volatilities are things that you should buy. Because remember, the market already understands that when it sees a high and low number. So it pays to, th- to, to double, uh, to sort of think a layer deeper here and say, if the implied vol is high, what might actually be the case? And I like to say that implied parameters, like implied volatilities, cannot vary as widely as what realized volatility or realized parameters. Why? Because the market is a discounting machine. That goes for volatility as well. Volatility is mean reverting because as volatility rises, nobody thinks volatility is going to infinite. Likewise, when volatility is falling, nobody expects that volatility is going to zero. So what happens is, if we think about S&P volatility, when S&P volatility goes to seven, I'm pretty sure the realized volatility is going to be something like five. In other words, the implied volatility is in the dumpster. It's super cheap, but it's not really cheap because it's realizing even less than seven. And of course, the reason the market will price that way is because the market doesn't believe that five volatility is going to persist for that long. So what happens is on the downside, when volatility gets cheap, the, its premium over the realized is probably high. So that that's a negative carry situation if you are long options. So the question is, is how long does the negative carry situation last before your options start to pay off when volatility starts to increase? So you can lose on the carry while you're waiting for the directional edge, meaning that the fact that volatility will rise at some point in the future, your carry may bleed you to death before you actually realize that later appreciation in volatility. Likewise, take one of these meme stocks where the volatility goes through the roof. 
when a stock's implied volatility is trading at 200%, I will bet you that the realized volatility is higher than 200%. Of course, the reason is, is if the implied volatility was higher than the realized volatility when you are on the high end. So it would be an easy trade to sell the volatility because not only do you expect volatility to fall in the future, but you are actually getting to sell the volatility even higher than its already appreciated level of realized volatility. It's an easy trade. Market doesn't give you easy trades. So when volatility is high, realized volatility is very high, the implied volatility will probably be a little bit cheap. And that's because the market expects the volatility to fall. But in the meantime, you might be able to earn positive carry from actually owning that volatility. So my point is, is that what people that are learning about options don't realize is that there is no easy trades in options. High volatilities are high for a reason and probably cheap until they start to fall and vice versa. So that's the first, that's probably the single biggest thing that I think that people that are interested in options for volatility fail to understand. It's not as simple as sorting and then buying the low and selling the high because high is often cheap and low is often expensive. Now, that's, that's, that's to answer number one. Number two was how can, what's missing from the education? And I would I would say that when I think about options trading, I would look at it from two, there's two different worlds you can think of it from. One world is that you are a vol trader where you are trying to make your edge sort of the way I did over my career, which is making small edges on mispriced relative volatility. That is a scale business. That's not investing. That is a business that's just like having a store. Um, we can probably have a large discussion about what is entailed in that, but that is a business and not something somebody can do from home. It's not an investing strategy. It is a, it, it is a business that requires a team and data. And, um, you know, there's very few examples I can probably think of, of individuals that are capable of doing that. Um, so that's one world of options. That's the so, quote unquote volatility trading world. Uh, that is an institutional world. The other part of using options is for hedging or speculating. What, when you are in that domain, that is what I would call directional options trading. Directional options trading is the area where investors have the most to gain. And the reason for that is that an option allows you to fine tune your bet. Uh, consider, consider a stock that is $100, something like a biotech stock. I like to use this example. Consider a $100 biotech stock that's underlying distribution is that it has a 10% chance of being worth $1,000. Let's say there's some FDA ruling coming and if it's positive, the stock will go to 1,000. And there's a 90% chance the stock goes to zero. It fails the FDA um, uh, trial or whatever. So you have a fairly priced stock at $100 that is a 90% chance of going to zero. Options allow you to fine tune your bet. For example, in this case, you know, the question is, is what is the, the 500 strike call worth? You may actually prefer to just buy the 500 strike call. Well, first of all, what's it worth? Well, there's a 10% chance that the 500 strike call is going to be $500 in the money. Right, so that call is worth 
$50. However, because this is a bimodal stock, the Black-Scholes formula will, if you put just stick a volatility into the stock, I, the Black-Scholes formula is going to generate the wrong price for that option. And that's because the Black-Scholes formula assumes that the distribution is log normal. This is a binary distribution. It's either going to be a thousand or it's going to be zero. So if you understand as an individual, as a retail investor or an investor in general, if you understand, if you believe you understand the distribution of a business better than the market does, the options might be mispriced. In fact, most uh, so so there's a, there's this concept of skew in the marketplace. The, the market is not so naive that it just prices options according to some Black Scholes idea. There's skew in the marketplace, which acts as a, as a fudge factor, which allows the market to change the price of the options to reflect its underlying distribution better. But so the idea is if you can outperform the market's expectation of the distribution, you can fine tune a bet. Maybe you think the stock is properly priced, but you think the options are mispriced because you understand the distribution better than the naive uh, market makers that are sort of setting the price for the options. That's where your best opportunity is. And that could be for speculating or for hedging. But the most important point here is that you need to know, you need to be able to know something about the fundamental distribution of that stock which means that this, your stock picking capability is what's paramount here, not your ability to understand options. As a matter of fact, figuring out what options are cheap or expensive, once you've sort of done that fundamental work on what you think the distribution looks like um, fundamentally, well, that's trivial. The options part is trivial. You, there, we have vertical spreads at our disposal that allow us to create over and under bets or we can have outright options if you think that, this, that the distribution is fat or tailed in some way than, than a, a, a more um, conventional model might think. So I think the best thing that retail investors can do is if they want to use options is, is really to think about, do they understand the stock better than the marketplace does? Now, that, granted, that's super hard and you know I'm generally pretty pessimistic on people being able to do that because it, it's... You know, if you can do that, you get to be super rich. But the 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 options market uh, should be used for retail more for directional ideas than this super nerdy vol trading idea, which is really not going to really doesn't lend itself to retail um, retail cost structures and retail access. So. Uh, when once you're in the directional realm, you are most most of your work is in analyzing the company's fundamentals itself, and the options part is sort of like the last ten percent of the work. So that's 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 uh, that's I think that uh, my answer to what does retail need better instruction on it's understanding how to use options for directional reasons and not getting bogged down in all this complicated volatility skew discussion. Um, for directional reasons, options are, are not that hard to understand. You don't even have to wade into the concept of volatility. You can literally look at option prices and think about them like a puzzle. Um, think about call spreads and vertical spreads, and that will, that will get you a lot further than trying to go down nerddom and calculus and all that. Brilliant.
that, that's such a great point uh, so uh, understanding the the fundamentals of the underlying securities uh, when you're trying to find mispriced options um, trying trying to understand the distributions of outcomes that can happen with the underlying security that that is uh, such such a great point uh, so so we'll we'll take the next caller uh, his name is Casey yeah hi Tin K and Chris uh, my assumption is that uh, volatility of the share price is strongly correlated to the fundamentals of the company are, are there are there any other reasons that it really are at play for causing volatility outside of fundamentals for for a particular stock um, I think so I mean uh, if you if you just uh, look at the market um, as, as a whole it's it's a little difficult to argue that uh, the only thing that affects the movement of the market is the um, are the fundamentals of the various companies, right? Um, the I mean, um, in the short term, markets can do all all kinds of things, and uh, uh, multiples could change based on uh, what Chris said about uh, the the for example the the equity risk premium and and things like that. Um, if if investors want to be if, if investors believe that inflation is going to uh, come in the future, um, or if if uh, investors believe that uh, interest rates are going to rise or fall, uh, all, all that is going to change the the valuation uh, of of the stock. And so there there are lots of um, components uh, in the that are baked into the price of a stock that um, in in the short run. Uh, they may have nothing to do with the fundamentals of the company and they may have everything to do with just uh, ma- macro considerations and, and uh, a host of other factors. Uh, so, so uh, Chris, uh, you, you, you can probably answer this far, far better than I did. <laughs> yeah. So let, uh, let me, there's a, I have two, um, there's two, uh, two answers to this. Uh, so first, you you cut you're nailing it right there. There's this short term. Uh, to first of all, it's absolutely true that the volatility of that stock is going to depend on the marketplace in general. And we can, in the short run, I can prove that mechanically because if uh, the, the the pathway works like this, if if risk premium in the market starts to sell off, meaning that the market, there's stress in the marketplace for whatever reason. Let's say S&P volatility starts to increase. Uh, What's happening there is when that happens, the correlation between stocks tends to start increasing. And what you will find in that case, just mechanically from the options market, this is what it looks like. The implied correlation of the market starts to increase. And uh, that's that's mechanically what happens when index options become more expensive. In order to hedge, in order to what will happen is option traders will sell index option uh, volatility, and they will buy the volatility on the underlying components. In other words, they're going to buy the, they're going to buy options on single stock, and they're going to sell index option volatility. And this is sort of out of scope for this conversation, but this is that's known as a dispersion trade, and it is a form of uh, loose arbitrage in the marketplace because you are isolating the correlation parameter between stocks. Now, 
what's happening there is if the risk premium in the market starts to increase and volatility starts to increase, people are going to be buying options on all the stocks, even if those stocks themselves, fundamental businesses, have not really changed. And that's because they need to be able to, to arbitrage the index. They need to buy the volatility on the components in proportion to the weight to, to the stock's weight in the index. Mechanically, they were going to push up option prices in these single stocks. And then there are feedback mechanisms between market maker hedging and somebody's going to be short those options. And that can lead to feedback reflexively into the volatility of the underlying stock itself. So we can call all that, that's sort of a mechanical, technical reason that is more short-term oriented as to why general stress in the marketplace will spill over into a single stock's option, uh, into a single stock's volatility increasing along with the marketplace. Now, long run, on the, that's again, that's a short run technical thing that can happen. Long run, the volatility of a stock must have a relationship uh, with the general market because all opportunities in a marketplace are relative. The concept of opportunity cost is, um, you know, it, it's tyrannical. You know, the opportunity cost is everything. So everything is relative. Your if the entire market got twenty percent cheaper and your stock did not get any cheaper, your stock would become relative might be relatively much less attractive. And you may uh, people might realize that and say, hey, we should all be selling this stock. So the fact that everything else got cheaper will most likely spill over into your stock and create its own sort of volatility. And so the fact that everything is relative is, um, in fact, that's why there's a risk premium in the marketplace in general, because it's relative. There's a risk-free rate, and then there's a rate, and then there's a risk premium that's associated with a risky return. That's all evidence that everything is relative. So I would expect in the long run that no single stock is ever insulated from what is happening in the marketplace in general, because it's always going to become more or less attractive compared to the general market. Right. I guess we're just trying to understand if you have a company A and B and they're, they're in the same industry, same fundamentals, they all, you know, in a hypothetical example, they grow at the same rate and so on and so forth. But one stock or one business tends to be more volatile than the other for reasons that aren't apparent, um, what would be causing the other the business in the same industry to be more volatile? And then like, can a company fight against it? Like for instance, Ber Berkshire Hathaway refusing to do stock splits and it's, and it's share price being so expensive, does that reduce the volatility of that stock? Can they fight against the volatility if the market makes it more volatile than the, you know, the owners want? I, I would say uh, my answer to that would be that if you, if you see, wait, uh, the way you're setting up the question is in a way that you know, you're 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 sort of assuming that there's actually no difference in these stocks, and one is more volatile than the other. Whereas, I'm more inclined to invert that and be like, well, if, if one of the stocks is more volatile than the other one, despite everything else about these stocks being the same, I I would say that that is a prompt to dig into that. That that's interesting. Like, if you if you believe that, then I, you know, I would say. That's probably wrong, that there probably is a reason. You know, I, I, I tend to, I start always with the idea that the market is smart about something and the market understands something that, it, basically, if something doesn't make sense to me, I assume I'm I'm missing something, not the market. Right. Um, so 
I would just say there that that is a great prompt to dig into it. And you may dig into it and find out like, hey, maybe maybe your stock is more volatile because it's part of some, I don't know, I'm just making something up here. Like it's part of some index that has become really popular, is starting to get a lot, very popular with retail flows. So that stock sort of becomes a football inside that index and starts moving around a whole lot. And maybe the other stock, that you're thinking of was not included in that index for whatever reason. And maybe there's sort of a technical reason as to why the flows are causing one to bounce around more than the other. But I'm saying like, that's, it might be kind of a dumb example, but that this, that would be something that you might dig into and find that there is a difference between these two stocks and it's a technical reason. And maybe that, that's a, maybe that's an opportunity um, to, to pair his trade around that or, to just buy the one that you like more um, when it when it gets cheaper. But my starting assumption here is that I am probably missing something. If these two things look exactly the same to me, but the market treats them differently, I have work to do. Okay, and then just that last point about can can like does, does Berkshire keeping their share price high does that does that reduce volatility or does that have any impact at all? I, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. I'm not, that seems like the kind of question that's probably discussed in papers, like whether there's an anomaly that has to do with, uh, stock splits. And if you split a stock and then more people can invest in it, I mean, theoretically it shouldn't make any difference because you can buy a fractional share. So it doesn't make sense to me that necessarily, but that, that, that's, uh, just because it's theoretically doesn't make any sense. Doesn't mean that there's not a real effect there. So, um, I, I don't really know. That's probably something there's papers written on, but again, there could be an anomaly that that would be an anomaly, but there's no theoretical reason. I don't think why these stocks, uh, why a high share price or a low share price should make any difference. Um, you know, other than you get into some weird tick size things as things get really low in price where, the tick size becomes a large percentage of its volatility, for example. But um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I don't think that that should matter. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to see uh, if there's any correlation between uh, uh, stocks that are heavily institutionally owned versus heavily retail owned and what the volatility, you know, correlation is between those, those ratios. But thanks, thanks for the answers, guys. So, so Chris, I actually have a question about uh, uh, Berkshire and uh, in in general stock, stocks that have uh, very large prices. So um, if you uh, yeah you're you're absolutely right that if you're just buying the stock you can buy uh, fractional shares. But what about the uh, options? So if you're if you're dealing with options, then uh, mo- most options are uh, in hundred share increments, right? So if if a if a stock is very pricey say uh, something like Amazon, which costs $3,000 a share. And say you want to, uh, you want to buy a call option or something like that on, on Amazon. Uh, the, the underlying has to be 100 shares of Amazon, which has a notional value of uh, something like $300,000, right? Yep. Um, so uh, you, uh, are, are there good ways to buy uh, fractional options? Or um, is, is, if not, is, is that going to affect uh, uh, how, how many people deal in those options and the liquidity of those options and, and, and so on, because there's no such thing as fractional uh, options. Yeah. So I would say, well, th- yeah, th- there's, I don't think it will, 
it's going to be normalized across option markets, meaning that the option people that are providing liquidity and options, they are, you know, just like somebody trading stock, they don't care what the price is. They just they, they are looking at how much dollar notional delta exposure they're going to be taking to be trading any option. So they're they are in their models going to have like their their mark. You can think about their the edge function on selling an op, let's say an option is worth three dollars. Right. And, you know, the question is, is let's say you're going to, you want to go buy that option and what price the market maker thinks it's worth $3. What price is the market maker willing to sell you that option for? They have some edge function, which is going to determine how much premium over the fair value they're willing to sell that option. For example, in Berkshire Hathaway, there's almost no chance they're what they're willing to sell you that option for $3 and one cent. And the reason is, this because of the slippage in the stock, if they have to go out and hedge the stock. The bid ask in the stock is I have no idea what it is. Let's call it a dollar wide. Think about think about how what an edge function for a market maker might have to look like. They say, okay, uh, let's say it's a fifty delta option, like an at the money option, and they think that to go out and if you go out and you want to buy, um, uh, let's say a hundred a hundred options, a hundred at the money call options in that stock that are 50 Delta, they are going to need to buy 5,000 shares of the stock in order to hedge that trade. So in their model, right. if you're a regular price stock, they say, well, 5,000 shares is going to move the stock a penny. But in Berkshire Hathaway's case, they're going to say, well, 5,000 shares of Berkshire Hathaway, maybe that's going to move the stock a dollar. So they are going to price that slippage into their market width on the options. So it's, it's always the options market is going to inherit any market makers pricing for uh, how wide they should be for a given notional dollar uh, um, exposure to the stock. So slippage is going to be a function of how many dollars are you trying to jam into the stock as a percentage of its volume. And so basically how liquid is the stock and then, um, you know, the price of the stock itself doesn't necessarily matter because it's already it, 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 we're, we're talking about how much notional is going to get moved. So, you know, 5,000 right. shares of Berkshire Hathaway or 10 million shares of some $1 stock, you know, it, it, the slippage is going to might be similar and, and uh, the options markets are going to price that um, in a very similar way. It's just going to be, it's going to fa be factored into the width. Right. Uh, absolutely. This is why we should have people like you on the, on the call, because I, I've never, ever thought about this thing. <laughs> you know, what, what does an option make uh, a market maker have to do in order to hedge their exposure? And how is that going to affect the volume of trading or the price of the underlying stock? It, it's something I've never, ever uh, thought about. <laughs> and yeah, this uh, is to someone... I was going to say this concept is is actually pretty neat. One of the first things they teach you in option market making 101 or whatever is to not provide more liquidity in a name through its options than through its underlying. Um, so, uh, and a lot of times that is, a lot of times that's exactly what a customer, like a large institutional customer is able to do is they, they might think to themselves, hey, if I try to buy a million a million uh, shares of X, I'm going to move the stock this much, but maybe the, the market for the options is so competitive that they can actually try to source the same amount of liquidity for 
net less slippage. If they can do that, that's because the market, the option market makers mispriced, mispriced the liquidity in the underlying. So there's sort of like a, you know, the option market maker, a lot of option market makers job, you can argue like, like more than half the job is probably just pricing in how much liquidity is in the underlier itself. So that you don't, outsize the liquidity and in, in the in the widths you're in the and the prices you're willing to show in the options themselves yeah i mean it, it's, it's also so interesting to me I, I think you should teach options market making 101 <laughs> i don't want to know for somebody who's outside <laughs> outside wall street uh, you know just to understand the concepts involved uh, it, it's just so fascinating <laughs> It's a lot of brain damage. <laughs> Don't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, I, I don't think we have any more callers. Yeah, yeah. So if, if someone else uh, has a question, uh, please step up um, and uh, ask Chris or me the question. Um, if, if there are no, no more questions, uh, then I, I think this is a good place to end the call. All right. All right. Looks like uh, there are no more questions. So I just want to thank Chris again for uh, spending this time with us and sharing so many valuable insights. Um, so uh, he his his wealth of experience uh, just just comes through um, in in so many ways, and he he thinks of so many things that you know I I, I would have never thought about. So th thank you so much for coming on. And uh, in in future weeks, if you, if you want to drop in, uh, just um, you know, feel free to come on any time to share your uh, uh, insights with us. It's it's it was so great. I, I enjoyed this call so much. Thanks, Chris. I I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and uh, you know, get back to enjoying your Sunday. Absolutely. All right. So, thank you all very much for uh, showing up. We will meet next next week. And if you enjoyed this uh, show, uh, please share it with your friends and on social media. Uh, so our, our goal with Money Concepts is basically, um, it, it's like a an informal investment club. We meet every Sunday and we discuss all things investing. Sometimes we have great guests like Chris to share their perspectives. And we, we all just want to help each other become better investors over time. And uh, if, if, you, if you want to uh, share that, if you, if you think this is a great idea and uh, if you enjoyed the call, uh, please share that on social media and uh, tell, tell your friends to join the call in, in future weeks. So thank, thank you all very much and uh, see you next week. Bye-bye.